You are listening to the Classical Mythology Podcast presented by LearnOutloud.com. With this series, we will investigate the characters and events that form the bedrock of belief in the ancient Western world. For more podcasts you can learn from, please visit our website at www.LearnOutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. Apollo One of the great divinities of the Greeks was, according to Homer, the son of Zeus and Leto. Hesiod states the same, and adds that Apollo's sister was Artemis. Several towns and places claimed the honor of his birth, as we see from various local traditions mentioned by late writers. Thus, the Ephesians said that Apollo and Artemis were born in the grove of Ortigia, near Ephesus. The inhabitants of Tegira in Boeotia and of Zoster in Attica claimed the same honor for themselves. In some of these local traditions, Apollo is mentioned alone, and in others, together with his sister Artemis. The account of Apollo's parentage, too, was not the same in all traditions, and the Egyptians made out that he was a son of Dionysus and Isis. But the opinion most universally received was that Apollo, the son of Zeus and Leto, was born in the island of Delos, together with his sister Artemis, and the circumstances of his birth there are detailed in the Homeric hymn on Apollo, and in that of Callimachus on Delos. Hera, in her jealousy, pursued Leto from land to land and from isle to isle, and endeavored to prevent her finding a resting place where to give birth. At last, however, she arrived in Delos, where she was kindly received, and, after nine days' labor, she gave birth to Apollo, under a palm or an olive tree at the foot of Mount Synthus. The island of Delos, which previous to this event had been unsteady and floating on or buried under the waves of the sea, now became stationary and was fastened to the roots of the earth. The day of Apollo's birth was believed to have been the seventh of the month. According to some traditions, he was a seven-month child. The number seven was sacred to the god. On the seventh of every month, sacrifices were offered to him, and his festivals usually fell on the seventh of a month. Immediately after his birth, Apollo was fed with ambrosia and nectar by Themis and no sooner had he tasted the divine food than he sprang up and demanded a lyre and a bow, and declared that henceforth he would declare to men the will of Zeus. Delus exulted with joy, and covered herself with golden flowers. Apollo, though one of the great gods of Olympus, is yet represented in some sort of dependence on Zeus, who is regarded as the source of the powers exercised by his son. The powers ascribed to Apollo are apparently of different kinds, but all are connected with one another, and may be said to be only ramifications of one and the same, as will be seen from the following classification. 1. Apollo is the god who punishes and destroys the wicked and overbearing, and as such he is described as the god with bow and arrows, the gift of Hephaestus. Various epithets given to him in the Homeric poems refer to him as the god who, with his darts, hits his object at a distance, and never misses it. All sudden deaths of men, whether they were regarded as a punishment or a reward, were believed to be the effect of the arrows of Apollo, and with the same arrows he sent the plague into the camp of the Greeks. Hyginus relates that four days after his birth, Apollo went to Mount Parnassus, and there killed the dragon Python, who had pursued his mother during her wanderings before she reached Delos. He is also said to have assisted Zeus in his contest with the giants. The circumstance of Apollo being the destroyer of the wicked was believed by some of the ancients to have given rise to his name Apollo, 
which they connected with the word meaning to destroy. Some modern writers, on the other hand, who consider the power of averting evil to have been the original and principal feature in his character, say that his name comes from the word that signifies the God who drives away evil. 2. The God who affords help and wards off evil. As he had the power of visiting men with plagues and epidemics, so was he also able to deliver men from them, if duly propitiated, or at least by oracles to suggest the means by which such calamities could be averted. 3. The God of Prophecy Apollo exercised the power in his numerous oracles, and especially that of Delphi. The source of all his prophetic powers was Zeus himself, and Apollo is accordingly called the prophet of his father Zeus. But he nevertheless had the power of communicating the gift of prophecy to both gods and men, and all the ancient seers and prophets are placed in some relationship to him. The manner in which Apollo came into the possession of the oracle of Delphi is related differently. According to Apollodorus, the oracle had previously been in the possession of Themis, and the dragon python guarded the mysterious chasm, and Apollo, after having slain the monster, took possession of the oracle. According to Hyginus, Python himself possessed the oracle, while Posidonius states that it belonged to Gaia and Poseidon in common. 4. The God of Song and Music We find him in the Iliad delighting the immortal gods with his play on the formings during their repast, and the Homeric bards derived their art of song from either Apollo or the Muses. Later traditions ascribe to Apollo even the invention of the flute and lyre, while the more common tradition was that he received the lyre from Hermes. Ovid makes Apollo build the walls of Troy by playing on the lyre, as Amphion did on the walls of Thebes. 5. The God Who Protects the Flocks and Cattle Homer says that Apollo reared the swift steeds of Eumelus Feratiades in Pyria, and according to the Homeric hymn to Hermes, the herds of the gods fed in Pyria under the care of Apollo. At the command of Zeus, Apollo guarded the castle of Laomedon in the valleys of Mount Ida. There are, in Homer, only a few allusions to this feature in the character of Apollo, but in later writers it assumes a very prominent form, and in the story of Apollo tending the flocks of Admetus at Phyre in Thessaly, on the banks of the river Amphrisus, the idea reaches its height. 6. The God Who Delights in the Foundation of Towns and the Establishment of Civil Constitutions his assistance in the building of Troy was mentioned above. Pindar calls Apollo the leader of the Dorians in their migration to Peloponnesus, and this idea, as well as the one that he delighted in the foundation of cities, seems to be intimately connected with the circumstance that a town or a colony was never founded by the Greeks without consulting an oracle of Apollo, so that in every case he became, as it were, their spiritual leader. These characteristics of Apollo necessarily appear in a peculiar light if we adopt the view which was almost universal among the later poets, mythographers, and philosophers, and according to which Apollo was identical with Helios, or the sun. In Homer, and for some centuries after his time, Apollo and Helios are perfectly distinct. The question which here presents itself is whether the idea of the identity of the two divinities was the original and primitive one, and was only revived in later times, or whether it was the result of later speculations and of foreign, chiefly Egyptian, influence. Each of these two opinions has its able advocates. The former, which has been maintained by Bootman and Hermann, is supported by strong arguments. 
In the time of Callimachus, some persons distinguished between Apollo and Helios, for which they were censured by the poet. Pausanias states that he met a Sidonian who declared the two gods to be identical, and Pausanias adds that this was quite in accordance with the belief of the Greeks. It has further been said that if Apollo be regarded as the sun, the powers and attributes which we have enumerated above are easily explained and accounted for, that the surname of the word for the shining or brilliant, which is frequently applied to Apollo in the Homeric poems, points to the sun. Still greater stress is laid on the fact that the Egyptian Horus was regarded as identical with Apollo, as Horus is usually considered as the god of the burning sun. Those who adopt this view derive Apollo from the east or from Egypt, and regard the Athenian as the god who was brought to Attica by the Egyptian colony under Cecrops. Another set of accounts derives the worship of Apollo from the very opposite quarter of the world, from the country of the Hyperboreans, that is, a nation living beyond the point where the north wind rises, and whose country is in consequence most happy and fruitful. According to a fragment of an ancient Doric hymn in Posenius, the oracle of Delphi was founded by Hyperboreans and Olinus. Leto, too, is said to have come from the Hyperboreans to Delos, and Aletheia likewise. The Hyperboreans, says Diodorus, worship Apollo more zealously than any other people. They are all priests of Apollo. One town in their country is sacred to Apollo, and its inhabitants are for the most part players on the lyre. These opposite accounts respecting the original seat of the worship of Apollo might lead us to suppose that they refer to two distinct divinities, which were in the course of time united into one, as indeed Cicero distinguishes four different Apollos. Mueller has rejected most decidedly and justly the hypothesis that Apollo was derived from Egypt, but he rejects at the same time, without very satisfactory reasons, the opinion that Apollo was connected with the worship of nature or any part of it. For, according to him, Apollo is a purely spiritual divinity, and far above all other gods of Olympus. As regards the identity of Apollo and Helios, he justly remarks, that it would be a strange phenomenon if this identity should have fallen into oblivion for several centuries and then have been revived. This objection is indeed strong but not insurmountable, if we recollect the tendency of the Greeks to change a particular attribute of a god into a separate divinity. And this process, in regard to Helios and Apollo, seems to have taken place previous to the time of Homer. Mueller's view of Apollo, which is at least very ingenious, is briefly this. The original and essential feature in the character of Apollo is that of the averter of evil. He is originally a divinity peculiar to the Doric race, and the most ancient seats of his worship are the Thessalonian Tempe and Delphi. From thence it was transplanted to Crete, the inhabitants of which spread it over the coasts of Asia Minor and parts of the continent of Greece, such as Boeotia and Attica. In the latter country it was introduced during the immigration of the Ionians. The conquest of Peloponnesus by the Dorians raised Apollo to the rank of the principal divinity in the peninsula. A local divinity of the shepherds of Arcadia was transformed into and identified with the Dorian Apollo during the process in which the latter became the national divinity of the Peloponnesians. In the same manner as in this instance, the god assumed the character of a god of herds and flocks. His character was changed and modified in other parts of Greece also. With the Hyperboreans, he was the god of prophecy. 
and with the Cretans, the god with bow and darts. In Egypt, he was made to form a part of their astronomical system, which was afterwards introduced into Greece. But whatever we may think of this and other modes of explaining the origin and nature of Apollo, one point is certain and attested by thousands of facts, that Apollo and his worship, his festivals, and his oracles had more influence upon the Greeks than any other god. It may safely be asserted that the Greeks would never have become what they were without the worship of Apollo. In him, the brightest side of the Grecian mind is reflected. In the religion of the early Romans, there is no trace of the worship of Apollo. The Romans became acquainted with this divinity through the Greeks and adopted all their notions and ideas about him from them. There is no doubt that the Romans knew of his worship among the Greeks at a very early time, and tradition says that they consulted his oracle at Delphi even before the expulsion of the kings. But the first time that we hear of the worship of Apollo at Rome is in the year 430 BC, when, for the purpose of averting a plague, a temple was raised to him, and soon after dedicated by the consul Julius. A second temple was built to him in the year 350 B.C. During the Second Punic War, in 212 B.C., the Ludi Apollinaris were instituted in honor of Apollo. The worship of this divinity, however, did not form a very prominent part in the religion of the Romans till the time of Augustus, who, after the Battle of Actium, not only dedicated to him a portion of the spoils, but built or embellished his temple at Actium, and founded a new one at Rome on the Palatine, and instituted quinquennial games at Actium. Apollo, the national divinity of the Greeks, was, of course, represented in all the ways which the plastic arts were capable of. As the ideas of the god became gradually and more and more fully developed, so his representations and works of art rose from a rude wooden image to the perfect ideal of youthful manliness, so that he appeared to the ancients in the light of a twin brother of Aphrodite. The most beautiful and celebrated among the extant representations of Apollo are the Apollo of Belvedere at Rome, which was discovered in 1503 at Rotuno. In the Apollo of Belvedere, the god is represented with commanding but serene majesty. Sublime intellect and physical beauty are combined in it in the most wonderful manner. The forehead is higher than in other ancient figures, and on it there is a pair of locks, while the rest of his hair flows freely down on his neck. The limbs are well-proportioned and harmonious. The muscles are not worked out too strongly, and at the hips the figure is rather thin in proportion to the breast.